everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm good. I was saying to you just before we started recording that I'm nervous. Uh, I, I think... This is, I think you're actually the second person who I've had on who I've read their book beforehand. Um, but then I always have this, you know, like when you, you get the nerves of like, what if I forget everything you've written in your book completely? And then I'm just like blank and you're like, did he actually read my book? Or So I have this like, this like internal dilemma going on that I'm going to become kind of moronic in the next few seconds and not impress this person that I've, I'm, I'm wanting to no impress. I've actually been on podcasts where people haven't read my book. So uh, not a problem at all. And if you even remember one piece of my book, I'll be, be very impressed because I am imagining there are actually parts I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, I guess I, this isn't one of the questions I've thought of, but what made you want to actually write the book? Like what you obviously you're passionate about this area, but what thought, oh, actually, I'm going to do a book. Yeah, it's really interesting when I look back. Um, so, you know, back in 2005, I was working in health clubs and I was seeing a lot of compulsive exercise. I was also simultaneously working at an eating disorder program. So it was on my brain and I was doing nutrition counseling there and seeing a lot of people uh, come to me with, with eating disorder behaviors or disordered eating patterns and exercise. I was seeing it and started talking to some um, health club managers who were, were also worried about liability, right? And these people coming in and exercising for hours on end and, and, and seemingly um, undernourished. And so uh, one, a physical therapist and I who, who worked together, put together a, a workshop for a local organization that is like a governing organization for health club managers and personal trainers. And we did a training and then we were asked to do it internationally. And uh, part of what we realize in our research is that a lot of people in the fitness industry struggle with this. A lot of personal mm. trainers themselves working in the in the field were struggling. And we wanted to not come at it from a place of judgment or or, or, or scrutiny, but just providing some some space on how to how do you address this right as a as a club manager and, and um, it, either with employees or uh, with your members. So it's interesting. So back then I, you know, I did a little bit of writing on it and I knew it was an issue and I kept seeing it in my practice. And, you know, um, if you if you do read my book, you'll, you'll see I struggled with it myself as a, as a former athlete and, and it kind of took on a compulsive nature in my own eating disorder. And, um, you know, through the years I, I found that, um, you know, mindfulness, yoga, all these different things I was learning really um, helped me come to full recovery and really help me heal my relationship with movement and make it a really uh, valuable part of my recovery process. And, you know, through the years, I kept thinking, oh, someone's going to write a book. Someone's going to put some resources together to help people know how to do this. And, you know, I, in my own practice, I've supervised a number of clinicians and, 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 you know, helped, you know, helped them like kind of understand what, what they can provide their clients with in terms of helping recovery. But a lot of it, like, there's this gap, right? We were telling them, okay, try to do some meditation, try to do some mindfulness. Here's a training, here's this. But I was like, we got to find a way to, to show people, right? To give them an experience with it 
uh, in vivo so that uh, they really, they can really take that from our work and, mm. and apply it in their life. So it actually evolved. I was in um, a, a, a yoga teacher training and I was in Shavasana and I just had this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to write this book. I'm this person. I've, I've you know, both had personal experience and I've now worked with clients for, you know, over, over 20 years and I've supervised other dietitians and therapists around helping people with their relationship with movement. And I, I, there are some pieces I know that we need to put together to connect these dots, to, to fill that gap. And so that's where I really, um, it all kind of, it really started to come together. I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to like put together this, this roadmap, but also create a training, uh, to help clinicians know how to, how to navigate this with, with clients. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And yeah, I've, I've, I've got a copy of your book here. I showed you beforehand and I've, I've read it. Um, I move it's called, how come I move? How come that so name? It's you know, I played with a lot of different um, things. It was like in, intuitive movement, insight-oriented movement. And um, and then I'm like, oh, that just like simplify it. I move. And like, you know, and I move, we do move. I mean, part of it is like, we are moving at all times, you know, even just as we breathe and our body's circulating um, and there's always energy moving. So it, it, it's, it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, I think in, in eating disorder, treatment, we often look at it as very black and white. Either clients are able to move because they've restored their, their body weight enough or they're nourished enough, or they, they, they aren't able to move. And I'm like, well, that's actually really an, an oxymoron because we are always moving. So mm. it's kind of this idea of, um, you know, really, you know, bringing movement in. Um, and I don't, you know, it just kind of clicked. It sound, you know, it was, it was, um, there's, you know, I don't, it just, yeah, it just kind of simplified it a little bit, you know, and, um, it's catchy. So it's catchy. Yeah. It's catchy. Good. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Easy to remember as well, which is nice. Cause yeah. you, know, when you, you know, when you try to recommend someone a book and then you get yes. the, on the tip of your tongue, but yeah. I moves yeah. nice and easy. Yeah. Um, and you've kind of touched on, I've, I made a, the classic podcast fault when interviewing someone with a book, we're not actually explaining what the book is about before going into the actual book itself. But for the people who um, have read the description, I'm sure, sure you already know, but the book is about, as we've been saying, compulsive exercise and recovering from compulsive exercise. And it's actually, you know, I wish I'd done this on purpose, but I haven't, but I've just done a podcast with Dr. Sarah McDonald, who is a clinical psychologist here in the UK and we spoke about um, relationships with exercise and like what what is healthy what's unhealthy what is you know, where's that line and we kind of we had a you know, nearly a two-hour conversation trying to trying to figure out where we think that line is um and I guess you know um in that that two-hour conversation we tried to sum it up and I think we you know we did we we some semi came to a conclusion but I'm interested, what's your kind of definition of compulsive exercise? Absolutely. So um, in, if you look in the literature, the definition that's used often is um, a highly driven and rigid urge to exercise combined with a perceived inability to stop exercising despite awareness of the risk of harm from continued exercise. So that's a, kind of a commonly used definition. But when we're looking at what compulsive exercise is you know, compared to what would be considered beneficial, beneficial or healthy exercise, 
there's um, really some distinct uh, differences. So when we think about some exercise that's beneficial, we think of something that's going to increase our energy, increase our mood, enhance our mood, whereas compulsive exercise exhausts the body, lowers the mood, increases anxiety. Uh, beneficial exercise might be passion driven, right? Someone's an athlete, they really love their sport, or maybe they're in recreational um, sport and they really love it. And it's, you know, they're um, aligned with it in a way that they, uh, it makes them feel really good. Whereas uh, compulsive exercise is punishment driven, right? It's like my, somehow my body's bad or I've done something that I need to make up for. It's more obligatory. Uh, life is scheduled around exercise versus, um, you know, exercise being scheduled around life. So a lot of people will forego other activities and areas of interest to exercise. So um, I've had people describe, I'm going on vacation with a group of friends and this one friend is getting up really early in the morning to do their however long run um, and missing out on breakfast with friends and, you know, some of the at the, the, the fun morning aspects of the of the trip. So that's an example of, of, of when it starts to take on another form and you're missing out on other things that might be really valuable in life. Um, beneficial exercise is a source of enjoyment, whereas, you know, as I mentioned, compulsive exercise, it's, it's more of a sense of obligation and a need to do versus want to do. Um, beneficial exercise respects the body's limitations and the need for rest, whereas compulsive exercise really ignores body's cues and any pain and indication that the body is at its limit. So th those are really, I think, helpful things to think about because we're not saying actually, we know exercise is good, right? We know exercise can be very valuable to our bodies, but when it's taken to a point where it's causing pain, injury, and or it's psychological stress, that's where it, when it's working against. It's like anything else, right? We have, mm. you know, any other relationship with um, different things that can be healthy and helpful. To yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I think you know, you've done a really nice way of summing that up because I think when you know, when you say that um, exercise isn't done through enjoyment or when exercise isn't is is done through pain and through things i think that that's quite confusing for for a lot of people and it's a bit like you know i've i have lived experience with uh, eating disorder compulsive exercise mm -hmm. all that jazz um and all that jazz now uh, <laughs> but i think it you know it, when i was going through that um i would have told you that i loved doing it and I would have told you that, um, that you know, the pain is part of it because no pain, no gain. You know, you've got to. Right. The messages we get externally yeah. about pushing past that are pretty strong. You yeah. Know? And the, but you, I think the, you know, the thing that I think I've, the conclusion I've come to, or one of the main factors is um, the way I would normally put it is rather than supplementing exercise into your life, people are supplementing their life into their exercise. Right. So, you know, your, their exercise is the thing that's cemented. And then if they can fit in, life right. things than they will right but. and I do want to make a point that you know and having been an athlete myself I recognize like there's some there's some level of discomfort right when you're pushing um past a certain um level of fitness and you're in your in your progressing there's some level of discomfort and there's some like um but when we're talking about um pain and ignoring right strong sensations in the body that are that are telling you to stop that's a different story and I, I think you're I think that's where it gets a little complicated because on one hand I think athletes can be very tuned into their bodies, but I've talked to a number of people in my groups that um, having been athletes say like, I, you know, like ignored it. I, I learned to ignore it. I learned to deal with pain, feel a lot of pain. And so I think there's this, um, this, this messaging, I think athletes do get and internalize that 
oh, my body is my, is a tool and I, you know, I'm going to push it to any, in pain is just a sign I need to push harder or I need to ignore that. And that's a really, um, I think there's a, there's, there's a balance because we know rest is an important part of training for any sport, any, mm. um, athletic endeavor. So I think there's this, um, conversation to be had about, okay, what are we telling our athletes? And I think that came up actually in the summer Olympics quite a bit mm. with the, the, um, the emphasis on mental health and, and, um, to look at mental injury, just the way we look at, um, you know, at, at physical injury. That was um, Simone Biles, wasn't it? Who, who, who missed one of the events. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting, wasn't it? Watching the controversy of that, the idea that she's supposed to sacrifice her psychological health for yeah, this yeah. sport, even you know, people who who've never done gymnastics in their life, you know, just they watch it and they probably never even watched gymnastics before that one Olympics. And suddenly they're piping up about how she's a disgrace to gymnastics for yeah. it's, it's shocking, isn't it? It, it, is, it sounds like, I mean, what my understanding is of what, what she was experiencing, it, it could have put her life at jeopardy mm. because of what was going um, on with her. And, and, and if she was to compete at that level, uh, you know, in that state, she was really putting her life at risk. And that's not, I mean, that doesn't, when we think about it in terms of what we value in life, what's meaningful um, in the grand scheme of things that that doesn't make a lot of sense for someone her age or any age, really. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that concept of battling the self, isn't it? That idea that um, I think in the kind of literature, looking at the fitness communities values that they portray through social media one of the things that they've highlighted is this idea of battling the self which is your body and your mind will tell you or, or put limitations in front of you and it's your responsibility as a fitness or as an athlete to push through those boundaries that, that concept of mental toughness and i think there's a way mm. to kind of almost like shift that paradigm right like what really is mental toughness is it um you know, I think, um, cause, uh, you know, I think emotional strength and mental toughness in, in terms of like my own journey and what I've seen other people do in, in their work, um, looks a lot different, you know, mm. when you, you know, I think there's, um, yeah, but it, I think that those messages that athletes and, and other people, I think about people in the military too, and that kind of training, intense training, there's a lot of, um, this, uh, sense of, um, uh, value or virtue associated with being really mentally tough, pushing your body past its limits. Um, and, and, and in that sense, I think we, you know, people in the coaching industry, coaching roles or who are mentoring these individuals have a huge, um, responsibility, mm. in maintaining safety and, um, kind of balancing, I mean, yeah, pushing yourself, but, at, but making sure you're also checking in with yourself and there's, an awareness of internal internal cues not just external yeah yeah exactly um i'm kind of i'm going to selfishly talk to you about something that maybe isn't related yeah. to the pod but oh well, i suppose it is but um i i'm starting my phd in october and i kind of have this um under like this kind of idea of where i'm going and what i want to look at specifically is um men's experiences of muscle orientated forms of exercise addiction compulsive exercise disordered eating etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and in the the kind of literature looking at men who have high drive for muscle, they have highlighted this um, masculine discrepancy. So these people tend to um, believe that they're not masculine enough compared to what they're supposed to be. And then they take on these muscle, these disordered behaviors around muscularity to try and renegotiate where they feel they are in comparison to that ideal spot. And 
it's interesting that the kind of the hegemonic masculine values almost align in, in my opinion align perfectly with the fitness and athletic values of um working really hard pushing through the pain um taking up space being big and, and muscular they're, they're all things that are in this masculine kind of this mm. yeah so i i think it's almost like this perfect pairing of you know these people who are insecure about their masculinity they mm. see the fitness community and think oh this is everything that i need like you know, and so no wonder these these people who are struggling with this um I know that's always like ontological um de defining themselves like who am i if i'm not manly or for whatever they're going to fall into this and i think it's a dangerous thing but i'm interested in your your thoughts on that yeah no you know i think it's it's so true like we've kind of we're, re we're reaching this equality around um body image dysmorphia so that men are feeling equally <laughs> as bad about their bodies as females historically have and it's i, I do think if you think look at the cultural messaging and it's so um pronounced right all the messages men get about what it is to be a man or or male young boys get right you know with the, the images they see even just from i mean i you know going back to like toys that are manufactured for boys the marvel characters i mean it starts starts so young and then what you're seeing and you know um whether it's even athletes you see that like you know who, who are the pro athletes right and what does it mean to be a man and and likewise um you know i think you know you see with females there's a different different protocol, right? There's a different Im ideal image and it's it's about, you know, shrinking, but also being toned and et cetera. Et cetera. So you do see it on, on, on all gender fronts. Um, and I think that's a really good point. And, and like, what is it, is it that, you know, someone's like struggling with their personal identity and like how, you know, their self-esteem and then, oh, this is a way out. This is a way to feel really strong and really, really, um, capable and, and and I I agree. I think it's it's um and in reality what happens is there's never it for most people the closer what I've the research shows actually um one of my colleagues at McLean wrote the Adonis complex. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, I literally is right behind me in the yeah, in Roberto Alvardi. Yeah, I used to oh, work with him at McLean. Please, please get me in touch with him if you can. But I remember <laughs> like a conversation with him, and then you know he he'd obviously looked at all the research, and he said, you know, the closer someone gets to the ideal, right? Like if you think about like models, or the closer someone gets to the ideal body image or the ideal um, perfection in terms of what we look at as um, beauty the actually the more um, dissatisfied they become, which is mm. so fascinating. It's almost mm. like it becomes, they're more aware of that, like 1%, 2% or whatever perceived variation is from that that um, picture of perfection than if, you know, they, they were further away, which I thought was very interesting. So it's not like you, that dissatisfaction gets better as the person, they're more, they're spending more time on it. They're focusing more on it. All of a sudden it become, becomes more of a central part of their life. And then they, um, it actually creates a lot more, mm. um, mental stress yeah so we adopt those behaviors of like check-in and and like body checking and measuring and stuff in, in an attempt to to rid of the body satisfaction but, but actually, actually exactly we're integrating it. it more we're making it yeah and, I, and, it and the more the brain is starved we know the more it gets rigid and and perseverative and so i think that there's that piece too all of a sudden it's like it just becomes more focused on food more focused on body more focused on all those things and mm. it is it's an oxymoron because i think that's the idea is people are trying to feel better they're, they're mm. feeling you know they're feeling unsatisfied with themselves well this is what i'm sold will help me feel happy and help me feel better about myself so it makes sense that people are going to um you know all of these you know uh, solutions to change the body
Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I, we've gone a bit off off topic. It's my <laughs> fault. I apologize. Um, okay. I my question to you is why is compulsive exercise a problem? And I want to refer to a, a a bit that's in your book where you mentioned how um, when you mentioned that you had experience with compulsive exercise, people would say, "Oh, I wish I wish I had that oh, yeah. problem." So yeah, why is it a problem? So it's interesting you say that because I think that's oftentimes like when I even um, described this book, I had, you know, I had a, a coach that helped me with the writing. Um, she said, oh, wow, that sounds nice. I wish I had that problem. And in, in the group that I lead with, with people that are struggling with compulsive exercise, a lot of them say that, like, it's really hard. I mean, I, everywhere I go, people are like, oh, I wish I struggled with that. And it's, this is the one place I have where I feel like people get it. Um, so I will, I want to make sure I, I distinguish the difference between excessive exercise and compulsive exercise or, or a lot of it. It's not about quantity, right? We're not talking about like, there are people that are triathletes there are people that are marathon runners or people that are cyclists that um, wouldn't meet criteria for compulsive exercise necessarily. Um, and they are exercising quite a bit, um, but they're also nourishing their bodies and they are very committed to their sport and they're taking rest days and all the things you need to do to take care of your body if you're going to be um, you know, competing at that level. So, um, Excessive exercise, you know, and I say excessive, so it's 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 a little bit hard. It's um, compulsive means it's it's past the point of um, what would be considered healthy, even at the extreme. So it's so say there's a high level of exercise someone's doing, and we know exercise can be beneficial for a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot research shows that anything more than um, forty five to sixty minutes a day for you know most days is not really I mean, from, if I'm looking at the American Health Association guidelines, it's not, not there's no real benefit um, from a cardiovascular standpoint. Um, but I, the reason why it's problematic is because once you start exercising compulsively and past the point of physical limits, you are putting yourself at risk of injury. You are putting yourself at risk of dehydration, um, electrolyte, electrolyte abnormalities. It's really hard to nourish the body enough to support that level of activity. Um, so I'm thinking of this friend we have that did an ultra marathon recently. He, he actually did half of it. So this is like a hundred mile marathon. He did 50 miles. And I asked him when he was training, I said, so how are you, how are you nourishing your, how are you like getting enough nutrition? He's like, Amy, I wake up in the middle of the night and I sleep eat. He's like, I'm I, in the morning, like my wife comes down and there's ice cream all over the counter and like crumbs. And I don't even really remember, but I just eat all the time. It's like, mm. it's, there's a level of exercise where it's like, you can't possibly, it's really hard to fuel your body enough for it. Right. So I think, um, it, it, I think our nature, um, you know, when we look at the messages we get about, um, about exercise in our culture, it's like the more, the better, right no pain, no gain. And, and you, yeah. and you see, you know, you see people's posting statistics on social media and that becomes something that feels like normative and something to celebrate Like the more we do the better. But I think it is important to recognize there's a, there's a, there's always a limit. There's always a point where, okay, the body, um, it'll, it starts to become sacrificed after a certain amount of exercise, because even people that are, I mean, I know the person that I know that did the ultra marathon after that, he took a really long hiatus and break you know, which is what someone struggling with compulsive exercise couldn't do. They'd be running the next day and. Mm. Yeah. And it's, um, it's the, it's the 
idea of falling into relative energy deficiency in sport yeah. or rents yeah. um, for yeah. people who don't know it's basically the, actually do you want to explain what it is for the people who don't yeah, know yeah so it's um relative energy deficiency in sports is you know when you are eating quite a bit of food but you're not um because your body is, has so much mus muscular um composition it, it's burning a lot more energy and as a result like you need a disproportionate amount of you know a lot more energy to keep your body in um in energy efficient state so that it's not going into what i call conservation mode or um econo mode if you're thinking i always think about like the dishwasher if you put on econo mode it's not using as much energy so there's a whole calculation i don't have it on the you know right now but um i got it from Re rebecca mcconnell she's actually created this really wonderful calculation to determine how much energy you actually need as an athlete based on your um your muscle mass and your mm. you know the amount of percent body fat you have so that is a huge risk and it does present a lot like the symptoms we see with with anorexia or a more restrictive eating disorder where the mental shifts we see happening with people with 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 anorexia start to happen with people with with reds yeah and i, I think one thing that's really kind of uh, important to to mention with with reds and with that those kind of because you get the obviously you get like the immune systems going slower your metabolism slows down your you can um you know, bone health gets worse because your bones aren't kind of repairing themselves at the same rate down, yeah yeah so, so so many bad so many things happening and i think one thing that's really because i i used to deliver some training on on this kind of stuff and one thing i used to always say to the people because people would always think this it's almost a purposeful thing so if someone falls into reds they must have um severely restricted or they must have been you know, they must have some form of eating disorder but a really good example that i, I um that I've, I've, i normally use is i forget who it was but i read it somewhere that somebody um was a, a let's say a triathlete or an ultra marathon runner and they used to always eat pizza at the end of a day or after the end of a training session and they thought a healthy in air quotes choice would be to swap their pizza for some rice cakes and and some ham okay. so they ate loads of rice cakes and loads of ham and they 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 felt full still but they weren't getting anywhere near as much energy from what they would have done from that quote unquote unhealthy pizza. So right. you can't, it can be you know, people making what they think are healthy choices can actually be quite dangerous. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I remember I had a 13, 14 year old boy come into my office with his mom and he'd lost a significant amount of weight in the last few months. And I'm purposely not going to speak to numbers, but um, but he uh, was, it was really fascinating. So I'm like, so what's going on here? And he said, well, I learned in health class that to be healthy, you need to eat lean meats and vegetables. So he had basically cut out all the food he had been eating other than vegetables and chicken and other kinds of lean meats. And, and he I said, so what was your goal? He's like, well, I really wanted to build muscle. Speaking back to what you were saying earlier, yeah. I said, well, actually to build muscle and for you to grow and to build bones at your age, you need to put some substance in there. You need to actually have some some substrate, some something, uh, some material for those mm. things to be built with. So that requires energy. So simultaneously, he'd also started exercising, right? So we talked a lot about this. Um, yeah, like you need the building blocks. You need to provide the the, the energy, and um, you will. Your body will go by default to break down muscle mass because that's the quickest way to get glucose into the system so mm. um if you're not feeding yourself enough for your body based on where your muscular musculature is and based on what your performance level is then absolutely it'll start 
taking away from muscle mass. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, it's really important to kind of outline that because it, it can be obviously um, very dangerous and, and the compulsive exercise burning this amount of energy can lead to very dangerous things, even if you don't ha necessarily have an eating disorder or some form of. Right. And you might think like, you know, by m m the average person's standards, you're eating a normal amount of food, right? It might be like, oh, I'm eating what my, you know, what my family's eating. But if you're training at a, a really high level, you might be needing to, need to eat twice as much as, as the rest mm. of your family or the rest, you know, your friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I also wanted to pick up on, you mentioned around this, uh, this boy that you, you had in your practice and that muscularity stuff. And that's something that you know, I think, I think there's more research coming out about it um, now, and maybe we'll start to get to an understanding of it, but it's a big kind of gap in the research is, you know, I think every eating disorder we, or most of the eating disorders that we talk about now or we have an understanding of they they tend to have a thinness orientated perspective in the fact that they need to like lower the amount of energy intake but muscularity orientated stuff there's kind of a there's a contrasting belief because on the one hand you know you have to eat more and you have to be mm -hmm. building muscle but on the other hand you still have that you can still have that thinness orientated of like i need to lose my body fat mm -hmm. um, and that's that you know how is that going to interplay and i don't think we know yet you know but it's it's a really interesting well point. that's where i think it gets um there's so much noise right around um, fitness and nutrition and exercise and wellness in um you know coming at us from all all facets um and, and it's really it's really confusing and overwhelming i think a lot of people get really uh, and, and it's a huge industry making a lot of money off of people's desire to change their body. So the really like there are these, the wellness industry and the diet industry really live off of people feeling awful about their bodies. So I think it's so important to remember that, that a lot of times, um, and, but th like there's certain powders, protein powders and supplements and all these things that you, you know, that are out there that, you know, can be, can be pretty dangerous too, depending on what's in them. Yeah. 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 And there's so much like, there's so much just uh, bullshit on nutrition yeah, yeah, websites and, and things. Yeah. The amount of supplements you see on there that actually, you know, there's no real um, academic background to them. They're just, this is a cool sounding amino acid. So hey, I can just, sell this. I can get yeah. it, you know, you know, I found a manufacturer. I'm going to put a label on it. Sell it on Amazon, make some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, no wonder people fall into these kind of issues yeah. um, and things. So, kind of getting back to the to the point we've already kind of answered my what was going to be my next question which is um what can when at what point can people realize they they have the problem um, and we we've spoken generally about the idea of um you know we we understand that people uh, have that kind of obligation to exercise rather than a want but how, like how do you think people can can personally you know how could they check that themselves yeah, I think it's, you know, asking a series of questions. There are a number of questions that in the book that I share um, and, and I, you know, in the workbook I share in my training. Um, but one of the things is like, you know, asking yourself, okay, what's, what's the intention behind moving today? What, what, what's my goal? Am, am I looking to um, change my body? And a good question is, okay, if I didn't think this particular activity was going to change my body shape, size, whatever, would I be engaging in it? Um, and I think also like kind of check in, like, where's your energy level? I mean, if you're feeling tired and lethargic and depressed outside of exercise, 
chances are that you're doing too much and or maybe there is an underlying depression or something and that, and that, that, that you're that there's an attempt to to feel better and use the exercise to feel better and that might be the only time you feel better is when you're exercising so sometimes it is something underneath it and that the person i mean a lot of times excessive exercise or compulsive exercise is really an attempt to shift um a state or to, to to regulate something that's not feeling okay and sometimes that's depression sometimes it's tra history of trauma um so i think it is important to just kind of think how do i feel outside of exercise um what if i this is a good question what if i was injured or what if i couldn't exercise for a week what would that feel like and if that brings up a lot of fear and anxiety i think that's a really telltale sign that if you couldn't you know tolerate right a, a week off or maybe even a day off that's that's pretty pretty indicative mm. yeah and i suppose it yeah that it kind of raises a whole host of questions if you can't take that week off as to why that is and um what what do you think is the most kind of common underpinning for people who who are do have some form of compulsive exercises is there is there a common or is it is it just purely individual that everyone has a different experience common underlying factor or a common type of compulsive exercise a common like underlying factor that, that yeah, manifests it, 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 i would say like a good majority of the people in my group um have some some form of trauma history um and if you read if you're familiar with um the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk there's a whole chapter about like running away from trauma and any book I've read um where someone experiencing significant trauma um there was that feeling of wanting to run away so the the the, goal, the exercise that the compulsive exercise actually helps people get out of their body versus stay in their body that's a big one there's also as you mentioned the muscle dysmorphia that desire to to change the body in order to feel better so underlying self-esteem um issues uh internalized in any sense of of um you know inferiority or shame around the body based on the messages that they're getting and so body image is a big driving factor some people it's more like of an obsessive compulsive um personality style mm -hmm. uh where there, there's like these numbers this way of measuring and creating some sense of order uh which is a big driving factor for folks um, it is a way of regulating. So for people that are very anxious or dysregulated, it's like, oh, this feels better when I exercise. And then it's like, just like that kind of need to, to do more and more and more to feel okay. Or, yeah. you know, some people describe it's the only time I feel okay. So, so really having that be the only, only, um, resource that they've been able to define to cope mm. with, um, with, with really uncomfortable emotions or, um, or, or anxiety. Yeah, I, I think I think for me it was um, kind of a, a mix of a lot of those things. I had a, I definitely had difficult moments as a kid. I, my dad was a people on the podcast already knows, but my dad was an alcoholic when I was a kid, so I had quite a lot of kind of emotional issues kind of growing up around around those situations. And I think that that a big a big thing for me, and that's the one of the reasons I'm so interested in that masculinity side is for me it was it was about being a man. Like I I my my dad was. Um, you know, he would always get in fights and he would, he was, he, he was tough and he used to play rugby and he'd always come back with scars on his face. Yeah, and, and typical, like, yeah, tough man. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was always taught like, growing up because I've always been very, I'm very like, a sensitive person. I have the kind of, I suppose you call them classic feminine traits, although the, yeah. you know, this doesn't necessarily, but, um, and, and I was always taught, you know, that, that, you know, 
you aren't what a man's supposed to be, but that's okay. Like I would be told that's, that's okay. But also, I actually have a son that I feel like is very, he's like my little Buddha. Like he's mm. so compassionate and empathetic and has such a sweet, soft, like nature. And mm. I, I, my daughter is like, I think she embodies more masculine traits. So mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to see them, but it makes my, it hurts my heart to hear like that, like that, the impact that that male toxicity has on, on, on men in our, in, in all cultures really. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And it's a, it's, yeah, it's a scary thing. I, I think everyone, everyone's succumbed to expectations of what they're supposed to be. Um, but I, I do think that the, the issues around masculinity on men is, is not not as widely talked about conversation um and yes yeah, so for me it was it was definitely um is it it was a combination of a lot of things as, as it always is but i think a, a key identifier in there was in the gym i can be the hardest working and i can be the one that endures the most amount of pain so therefore i can be the the one that's you know that is manly you know so i could maybe i'm not the strongest or the biggest but i'll work harder than anyone mm -hmm. and that was what i found found in it and that's what kind of made me kind of you know, spiral out of control but i also think as well it started off as this kind of positive feedback loop of if i do this i become i feel more manly but then it became this negative feedback loop suddenly where now it's i have to keep doing it otherwise i'm not going to be manly anymore right. um and you know i'd get because because i was going to the gym and i'd start building muscle i'd start getting more attention from girls yeah. in my school yeah. and from like you know, the yeah. women around me and so I, I started thinking oh if i stop going to the gym now then i'm not going to have yeah. that kind of not respect like yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm not yeah you know, and so there's you fall into this trap of like the who you are is is masculinity um and it creates it's such a difficult thing to come out of yeah and we think about that it's so externally driven right it's always mm. these external messages messages you're internalizing or basing your you know how you are or how okay you are based on like external approval and I can very, very much relate to that. I think early in my life, that was very a big part of how I would measure myself, and um, and and I'm so grateful to have been able to flip that and start to really be able to really get know myself, right? Like, and really, and feel like I can really embody like who I am. But I think that's, I feel like that is a rite of passage for a lot of kids. And if you had trauma in your childhood or you know really you know challenges in your in your house, I think that makes it even harder because you're trying to kind of um if there i I, I can relate to that like kind of the um an environment where maybe you had to be super vigilant right and like kind of just monitor your surroundings and um that makes you much more aware of the external environment and how people are seeing you and making you know i think that um that's an interesting i'm just kind of thinking about that a little bit like how it gets you a little more makes you a little more um aware of of pleasing people around you and wanting mm. everyone to like you and, and kind of and meeting other people's standards to, to be loved and accepted, right? Because there's this message that somewhere in there, some part of you, a younger part of you might feel like, oh, and like, you know, this is what it means to be accepted or this, if I do this X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to be okay. That mm. kind of, I think that there's an underlying feeling of inadequacy. A lot of people are, are struggling with that, that feeds into the eating disorder. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of you know it's something I've spoken about previously. It's that it's a you know, narcissism is really closely related with muscle dysmorphia and things. And I think it's one of the reasons why we don't 
consider it that much of a problem or people don't care as much is because we just think they're a bunch of cocky like yeah they're just narcissistic they they love themselves like like why why underneath narcissism right is exactly exactly painful insecurity Mm -hmm. and that's that's what i mean there's a flip side to narcissism yes there are those kind of the stereotypical narcissists of loving themselves or whatever and even they might have some kind of underlying thing but for me narcissism was i was obsessed with how other people viewed me so i was constantly aware of like do i look good right now do i you know and that that was horrendous because every second i was does my arm look big from this position like i need to make sure everyone thinks i look muscular right now and it was you know i'd be sat in lectures at uni and I'd, I'd, I couldn't like I couldn't focus on what's going on because I was so obsessed with making sure my arm was flexed or an angle that. You just think about how much shame one might endure if, oh, God forbid, like someone um, rejects them or doesn't see them a certain way, or they 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 get you know there's a, a, a you know they, someone perceives them in a certain way that is not as less than perfect or an ideal. Yeah. Um, that's I, that part of being distracted in, in, in class and in, in focusing on the body. Oh, like I can kind of I have a very <laughs> visceral reaction to that because I can remember that, like just kind of like awareness of like my, you know, kind of discomfort and sitting in the seat and just not being able to focus in class because I was distracted by thoughts about my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love, um, I think what, one of the things that helped just speaking of shame and I do think shame was such a high driver and I'm sure you probably heard of Brené Brown oh, uh, who does a lot of work in, in shame yeah. and her book, um, The Gifts of Imperfection was, mm-hmm. I think it, I, always, I always see that as a big like turning point in my like recovery that like recognizing that you you can you people feel shame and and that it's not like it's normal like everyone gets those she always talks about those like um I can't remember the word she used like a shame cue where something like cues you to feel like oh I should be ashamed of this and I I used to I felt yeah yeah, I felt them I remember like I could finally put a name to that physical feeling I would get when my heart would sink well I feel like it's like a big it's like a rock sitting right in my Mm. chest like I feel like just like my whole body feels like it's contracting yeah I know that's it's a really but but also the power of vulnerability right that yeah what the freedom you can get from being vulnerable and sharing and not holding that shame like what do they say what's the saying um shame can't shame can't live in the light Mm, that's amazing yeah and that, that actually I've not actually heard that saying before but that it it um resonates with me a lot and I've, I've recently moved down to London um and I've moved in with um one person who I know from uni and a couple other people who I, who I don't know and I was saying to the guy that I knew from uni because you know, when I was at uni I was still kind of I was it was just starting my recovery so I still had a lot of my kind of compulsive behaviors and I would always I, I was a bit of a compulsive liar in the fact that I had to like portray this other version of me um in order for people to to, to think respect me or like me because I was so ashamed of who I actually was and I said to him and like the second day I was here that I was so excited to, to speak to, to get to speak to him again as actually me, not like I'm getting a bit emotional saying it, but like not putting on this and it's so free. And like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm so honest now. And I do, ca- I still catch myself, you know, everyone like tweaks things and I, but I try my absolute hardest to always just be honest, even if it's scary. Yeah, that's and it, it, it and you realize like it, it is so freeing, right? I mean, mm. I will say like that was really, I'll say it was really hard to write my book, particularly the part where I share my my, mm. my personal journey, and it was such um, a source of, source of growth, like to put it out there. And I, I mean, it was hard to revisit that part of my life, like, um, but 
it felt so freeing. I, I did so much growth and healing through that that process as well. And to put it out, because I think for a long time, I, I talk about this in the book, you know, in, in the field of eating disorders for about 20 years. And early on, I really felt like a shame that I had struggled myself. And then, you know, honestly, at that point was still in the tail end of my recovery. And um, so it was felt like I had to hide that and keep it mm. separate. And it was so um, I feel like looking back, gosh, I felt so much shame. And like, I kind of like had to compartmentalize that part of myself and through writing the book and kind of bringing that, that part in, I felt like there was this integration and it actually like, the truth is that it was always a value to the work I was doing with clients. If even if I wasn't sharing my personal history, like they got that I got it right. There was a, mm. a sense of like, okay, she gets it. Um, and so I don't think I had to share it with clients per se, but for myself, I think just not, not talking about it with former supervisors or, or, or other people that I was in professional relationship with. I, I think it was, um, it, it built up that shame for me. Yeah. I, and I remember, I remember like reading that in your book and, and, um, it, I suppose it resonated with me, um, that, that idea of not, not wanting to, to tell people. And I remember being, I was so kind of happy to read that you are, you got to that point where you did and, and that, yeah, I feel like I'm going to get emotional saying this. So I'm going to try not to, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, th- I am always so inspired because it's something I'm trying to do so much is take what I've experienced and try and turn it into something that's going to help people and actually make an impact and change and affect people that are going through the thing I'm going through. And I'm always so inspired by people like you who go through the shit and just and get through it. And, and even I'm sure we're, we're both still struggling with things every now and again, and, and it's, it's life, but to be able to you know do your book and do the things that you're doing and, and make an impact, like it's, it's so huge. And I think the fact that you can be honest and, 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 you know, and, and kind of push through that shame is huge. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's inspiring. And thank you for, for writing the book and, and yeah, I just, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's fantastic what you're doing and I really appreciate that you are doing it. Thank you. I, I appreciate, and I'm really going to let that sink in. <laughs> at one point in my life, I wouldn't have been able to just receive that and let it, but I, I thank you. I, I feel, feel grateful to be able to channel what, what is adversity into something mm. that is, is valuable and helpful. And I feel like that's probably the passion and the grit that's, that's kept me going in terms of building my practice over the years when there were times when it felt really overwhelming and um, burdensome I was like you know this is just so important to me and my values and who I am and what I want to do in the world so mm. thank you so we've kind of gone off topic and I really want to get onto the actual uh, I want to talk about the ways that people can can kind of um, come out of, of compulsive exercise can, can you tell us a little bit about I move the kind of the process of it yeah, absolutely. So um, the idea behind iMove is that um, in, 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 instead of um, creating this dynamic where we're either exercising or non-exercising, um, you know, particularly in the context of, of eating disorder recovery, it's let's look at the relationship with movement and exercise and bring it from something that's very externally driven to something that's much more integrated and embodied. And when, so really iMove is this roadmap into the body. So many, many people who struggle, or most people I've, I've, I've worked with who struggle with compulsive exercise, it's, it's purpose has been to, ex, to, to get, to disconnect from the body, to get out of the body. And the goal with iMove is to come back into the body and then move from there. So really in an integrated way. So again, I integrated insight, 
intuitive. All of those words really um, fit nicely into what we're trying to accomplish here. So it starts with um, really unpacking and exploring, okay, what is, what is exercise to you? What role does it serve in your life? All these messages you're getting from the external environment, everything that you've kind of internalized about what, what exercise is, what purpose it serves, how it serves you. And then we go into getting to know our nervous system. So really educating on um, uh, the purpose um, exercise serves in helping us regulate our systems and what they might be getting out of it, um, un like un understanding the neurobiology of movement and the neurobiology and then and getting into the sensory system, our physical body and how we relate to the outer world and all the different sensory input exercise provides. And what I love about it is people start to get to, get to know their own unique system, their nervous system, how it reacts to different cues in the environment. They get to know like uh, sensory input that they feel drawn to and sensory input that they're repelled from and with, with no judgment, just curiosity. And then gradually we start to work into more of the subtle body. And if you're um, familiar with yoga, this we're talking about like the, the koshas, the different kinds of, we have like the external, our connection to the external world and we have our physical body. Then we move in a little bit more to like the subtler body, like the energy body. So what, I, what we're trying to do is we get into more breathing and meditation and, and help people just get to know the subtle cues and um, that, that are existing in their body. And this can be very scary. So we're doing it very slowly and gradually to create, you know, over time, some some gradual exposure, so people start to feel more comfort. And because we're doing it in group most often, or in a safe space with with one clinician that the person's built up trust, there's this benefit of the co-regulation. And if you're familiar with um, the polyvagal theory that Stephen Poor just developed, it's all about um, how we our nervous systems connect to one another, and 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 where I or other people in the room can create, can, can convey safety through our, like our social senses, our eyes, our mouth, our, our ears, like we can find ways to help create safety in, a, in an environment for someone, even in the face of something really uncomfortable coming up in their body. So that's, that's the goal is to kind of create this opportunity to feel into the body in a deeper level in a safe environment. And from there, okay, now let's bring that into movement, right? So that you're integrated you're, you're, you're mindful, you're noticing your body's cues and let's go for a run from there if that's what you choose to do. And what do you notice in your environment? Like what are three things you can smell, hear, see? What does it feel like to um, have your, your feet against the pavement, maybe running without music just to see what, what it feels like and bring more mindfulness in? Those are the things we're trying to do is like kind of shift that relationship with exercise um, and bring in a lot of awareness of, of, of their own internal system. Mm. And I think I think that's you know that the idea of of facing it despite it being scary. Um, I think that's so important. I, I think you know I'm just I'm trying to kind of sit in my my head when I was kind of in the my worst of my compulsive exercise. I would have thought, oh well, you know, I'm fine right now. Like I'm doing it. I'm all right. So I'll, I'll just I'll, there's no point working on this right now. But it's better to to face the thing you're scared like head on and actually go for it and and attack it so to speak rather than allow it to to come onto you because some like life is life is you know is um is the kind of existentialist would say life is pain and suffering and, and it's our responsibility to to combat against that and that's something you can find power in um and you know, it feels counterintuitive though, when you're feeling really like mm. you're so uncomfortable and you're feeling like you think about shame, like it's a good one, feeling so uncomfortable and it's so painful. Um, I think most people's inclination is to shift that, right. To kind of push it down, kind of get rid of it. Um, but if you can sit in it, like, you know, like the fastest way 
around it is through it. They say, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like just get it, it, but it's, it's so painful in that moment and uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's so important. Like, you know, people listen, if you are con you're considering it and you're thinking, well, maybe I'll just put it off. I do think it's, you know, you're going to have such a better time. If you, I know, I know I'm trying, I'm not belittling how scary it is because I know how scary it is, but it's, it is such a difference if you face it um, yeah. by making the choice to rather than allowing just falling into it. Right. Right. And I think to, to, to recognize too, I think one of the like uh, eating disorders, compulsive exercise are very isolated behaviors and it, it tends to, to um, I think, it, I know for myself, um, I really valued self-reliance and I didn't want to have to meet anyone. I didn't want to ask for help. But what I've learned is that actually when I'm feeling those intense emotions, if I can share it, you know, take that step of being vulnerable, right? Ask for help, ask for, ask for it does lighten that load it doesn't feel quite as big and like we talked about before like you know when you once you you share that you're bringing whatever that emotional experience is into the light and it feels a lot less heavy to to carry and but it's that's hard to take that to take that step yeah yeah definitely um so i, I wanted for men i think you like when you talk about like you know masculinity and what we think of as masculinity and strength and i think it's a really even more hard for men to, to, to speak to what might be going on emotionally just um, yeah, I, I think the, also the the one that definitely the stigma around for men, I think is 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 more difficult, or it seems to be, and yeah. um, but also the 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 concept of normative alexithymia, that like learned misunderstanding of emotions, and you know, we don't we don't you know I for one of the first things I worked on with my counselor that I've, I've said a million times on the podcast now, but um, was that I had to learn what anger was. I didn't I didn't understand what angry was like i i've just felt negative emotion and people think again it's similar to exercise people think oh well you don't feel angry that's great because angry is a bad emotion but actually for me what that meant was i could it could never be someone else's fault i could never say oh that person was a dick like mm -hmm. they did some they did me wrong it was always just yeah it was negative emotion it must mm -hmm. have been down to me and one of the things that i learned with my counselor was that's this is what that, that emotion you're feeling now that's angry you're just ang angry and recognizing that and now being able to be like you know oh that no screw that person they were you know they were mean to me or, or wrong is so much so powerful um and yeah and i think for a lot of guys we don't we don't i think i think stereotypically for for, for men it, they tend to only know anger and they don't know vulnerability and that stuff too. like that feels like the most comfortable emotion or the mm. most acceptable emotion but usually underneath anger there's sadness there's mm. grief, other things there and um i think that's so important uh to offer space for and uh, i mean i do try so hard um to just when my when my son's he's 12 he's having emotions just to mm. just validate and listen to them and give him space for that and um he is super i feel like he's pretty emotionally intelligent which mm. i'm proud of and to your point um he's also getting messages like at school about not being a snowflake and you know like these yeah. awful messages that i can't control right um so having conversations about what does that mean and how did that feel for you and to keep him like connected to his authentic self while in the face of a culture that's going to want to masculate him in a certain way mm -hmm. yeah and that's it's 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 inevitable that those things will affect all of us you know we all get affected no matter what our gender is we get different yeah. different yeah. pressures and um yeah it's is it's a it's a hard thing to have to kind of uh, deal with but it sounds like you're doing the right thing and uh, i have no doubt that you are 
Um, but I said, because I'm conscious of time, so I, I kind of want to get into this. Within iMove, you use a lot of meditation and kind of mindfulness practice. And it's something that I've uh, I've used myself, but I never really knew why. And I read a bit about the, um, I, I forget the name already, the Valgal, in your, you mentioned it in the Holy book. Holy Vagal Theory, yep. Yeah, uh, Holy Vagal, yeah, um, Theory. I didn't, I never heard of that before I read your book and I learned a bit about it there. But can you explain to people, I suppose, not maybe not necessarily that, that, that theory maybe if you don't think it applies as much but how does how does meditation and being mindful actually help with compulsive exercise and where does it come in that's a really great question so a lot of what we're trying to do with um, iMove is to provide alternative ways to regulate the system, right? So that exercise isn't the only way people have to regulate their system. It's also to create a lot of a, more awareness and um, of the thought processes, right? So once there's a, a um, like a, a, um, a perception or you can kind of observe the thoughts without judgment and and notice like the emotional response that's coming up you can the awareness and curiosity of it helps to kind of open it up so that it's has less power right the thoughts have less power less impact so um as i talk about in my book the first time or couple times people meditate oftentimes they feel really awful it, it actually exacerbates that monkey brain or the the active brain that we're all familiar with and and it feels really bad and like i don't like this i don't want to do it but I, I, it's that, and, and so I, I will say it takes time. Like you need to do it repeatedly. Um, it helps slow down the brain. You start to kind of have an awareness of um, like what we call um, innocent end behavior. So the, 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 what triggers you to do something, you might have that, that process might slow down. So you then have choice and you're like, wait a minute, do I really want to move? Do I really want to exercise? What is my body needing right now? And and um, we know meditation helps to increase the relaxation response. So maybe if someone's in like a sympathetic state, that fight or flight state, what would actually be really valuable is to slow down and get into parasympathetic response instead of doing something really rigorous, which is gonna activate more um, adrenaline and, and, and increase that sympathetic reaction until they just crash. Um, so the idea is to provide other ways to, again, regulate the system and for them to get to know things that they like and appreciate. and. Um, to be able to utilize relationship to people in their lives. And the other thing I'd like to mention is that when people stop compulsively exercising, oftentimes they experience both psychological and physical pain because, you know, endorphins are a natural opiate. So there's naturally pain associated with um, the decrease of exercise. So uh, a lot, there's a lot of research around meditation and mindfulness helping to decrease pain in the body. In fact, it's used a lot with pain, pain patients. So I think it's, it's another avenue instead of, um, I mean, certainly medications can be valuable when you're, if you're really struggling with compulsive exercise, but it's another avenue to um, decrease some of the side effects that come up when you stop exercising compulsively. Mm, it's, it is, it's so interesting to me. And it's something like in regards to meditation and mindfulness, it, there's that kind of spiritual element to it, which if I'm, I'm honest, I've always been it's always put up a guard to me. Like I've always been, if someone starts saying anything about spirituality, I'm like, Ugh, like it just yeah. <laughs> feels like wishy-washy and I just feel uncomfortable, but it's not it's masculine, some... right? <laughs> uh, exactly. 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 And yeah. so, but I'm, I am really working on trying to explore that. And I think, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, I think, I think it's, um, what's the word I would say? It's arrogance to assume that we can explain everything through our perceptions and the measurements that we've come up with to the point where them 
yeah, I think you know, we know for a fact that there are colors that we can't see, for example, that other animals can. So how are we to know that there aren't other other things that we we can't measure, that we can't understand? And I do think that, um, you know, I'm kind of hating myself for even saying this out loud because it's the first time I have, but it's something I, I do genuinely believe. I think, it, I, yeah, I do think it's arrogant to assume that we can understand it. And I do think that, you know, having done meditation and, and, and things, I do think there's a part of it that is just, it's different. Like I'd, I can't fully explain it. It doesn't make sense to me how much of an impact it has on my life when I do it. Are you, do you, do you resonate with that? Oh, I do. I do. And it's funny because that you said it, because I do hesitate in certain environments talking about it, but I definitely, for me, it feels like an expansive connection with, mm. um, just the universe and like, and, 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 and just open, like kind of like realizing there's something there, right. There's something bigger than me. And it's, it's, um, I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't need to, it's a feeling, a felt mm. sense. And, um, yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that that's, um, that it's an amazing component. I think people come to meditation. They come, people come to yoga for this, you know, same, same reasons I like come for fitness and they end up getting so much more of a mm. spiritual, um, growth in the process. So I, I think, yeah. Um, isn't it I, funny? I think it's because we, we, both, obviously we read the research and we're in the yeah, science yeah, yeah. world. There is just that stigma around talking about stuff like this. Well, in academia, I think, especially, yeah. like, you know, like, well, we can't prove it with science, right? If we can't mm. see the numbers, we can't see the outcomes. Like we, you know, it doesn't exist. I think mm. that's, um, that kind of con that age old dilemma around, um, you know, kind of religion and science, right? It's like, you know, and, and I think there's a difference between spirituality and religion. I think that, that there's two very, two very, like religion mm. feels like the, the, the doctrine and the, the study of certain um, traditional beliefs mm -hmm. around, I guess, connecting to spirituality. But I think spirituality is a very personal, for me at least, feels very, very per personal and expansive and kind of just, um, uh, yeah, I think it's something that uh, people, I think when we don't know it, we can't, or we can't put our hands on it. It, it, it can be very, um, disarming and mm. uh, uncomfortable to talk about. Definitely. There's, um, I'm, I'm personally not religious. I, I always say I'm agnostic, um, mm. in the sense that like, I, I, I genuinely, like there's very few people I've met before where when I've spoken to them and they said they're atheist, that I haven't spoken to them about what an atheist is and then they've gone actually maybe i am agnostic because <laughs> i think i think to if you fully believe in the kind of research idea and this this is this conversation has taken a wild spin but, <laughs> um if you fully believe in the in research itself you're 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 saying that you know the, the general kind of underpinning is you have to have enough evidence for the question and the question of does does is there a god or is there a, another entity that's created everything we don't sure we may not have enough information to say there is I, I i would agree with that personally but i also don't think we have enough information to say that there definitely isn't and people if you're an atheist you're saying you know for a, you're right. definitely right. there is not and i don't think it's possible to there's so many things we can't even comprehend that how could how could we just be so arrogant to assume that we know it? Yeah. I, I really um, feel that um, keeping an open mind and just kind of like um, recognizing the possibility of whatever is, mm. is valuable in terms of ongoing growth. And uh, it, yeah, it, it's yeah, I agree. It's a very um, and, and it is we're getting to a very deep conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Talking anyway, it's a, we've but, gone but down. We're a... but, but to be honest, when we think about it, like when you think it's actually interesting, we're going here because when you think about like certain gyms or fitness routines or fitness organizations, I feel like they have replaced mm. 
church and religious organizations in some some in some way. I think a lot of people are going to these places for their community and this is their 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 religion. Actually, they yeah. would I probably even say, you know, exercise is my religion. Um, yeah. It's my in my outlet. Um, so that's it's interesting. I, there might not be when I might not not be too, too far of a stretch to say that there's some overlap here. Yeah, and in in like you know, I was I, I was speaking at a um, I'm I'm a board member for the um, Applied Psychologists in Physical Activity Network that Appen were called, yeah. um, and we had a network meeting recently, and and we was I was speaking with a bodybuilder there, and she was telling me how because I was obviously talking about my experience my like kind of research interests in muscularity stuff and she was saying it for her that her experience with bodybuilding is it is kind of a form of mindfulness in the sense mm-hmm. that she's thinking about the muscles she's contracting and she's yeah. feeling it and that almost again it feels spiritual like it feels like yeah. you're well, and i will say there is we in, in the i move groups we we will do mindful mindful strength training and i love that i mean that's exactly what we do we talk we kind of talk about focusing on the muscles you're using and um, what about the parts of your body that are really relaxed right now? Like noticing that and, and awareness of the breath and connecting to the body. And I absolutely think strength training can be mindfully done. I think it can be done mindlessly too, you know, without yeah. any awareness yeah. of um, the body and kind of pushing again, like we talked about before, just pushing past um, one's limits. And, and, and like, I, I, you know, I th- I'm thinking of people I see at the gym that just do it so fast. And then yeah. it's like, you know, kind of, did you really do it? Like, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, but that, and that's kind of the question I raised from us talking about that was I wonder if there's again looking into the masculinity. I feel like there's quite a a, a link to masculinity with the idea of just like going all out and like just like like you know destroying yourself and there's there's kind of that yeah, masculine presence that, there. all effort in yeah yeah and you know it's in a, I mean it does bring up that concept like the um you know the the Eastern philosophy of yin and yang right mm. you know like a mm. lot of our um, you know, a lot of what we're doing in our daily lives is yang and that masculine energy of doing and efforting, but there's this other yin quality and we do all benefit from the balance of both where it's receptive, it's more, it's a little slower, a little more fluid. Um, so I think there's, um, but you're, to your point, I think that when, um, you know, in cultures that value the masculine, kind of that masculine ideal, and, and particularly for men who've internalized that, they're going to be very focused on like, all out, all effort, hundred percent, every, you know, just do, do, do. Um, and there is a detriment there both yeah. to the body and to the spirit and to the, you know, to the one's emotions. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, so how do we prevent people getting to the point of compulsive exercise? How do we stop people actually getting there? That's a really good question. And I think a lot of, I think I mentioned earlier, the coaches and people that are in the fitness industry, like having, um, helping people really develop a language of, um, an awareness of what's going on internally, right? Not having everything like, okay, externally goal-driven around like, okay, this, you're going to run this many miles, or you're going to lift this much or whatever. It's like, well, how do you know on a physical level or internal level that this isn't okay. This is okay. What does it feel like to you? Um, you know, how do you feel afterwards asking those questions? I mean, whether it's individually you ask those questions or as a clinician or someone working with people that are um, athletes or, or, or doing any kind of exercise, just say, so like, let's talk a little bit about what you feel like when you're moving, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And I'll give you an example. Um, one of the men in my group was a cyclist and 
you know, he realized that, you know, the, the cycling was a big part of his disorder and had to give it up. But um, when we talked about, he still loves cycling. We talked about what he likes about it. He's like, I love the feeling of riding away, riding away. Like it just feels so good. I said, you know, so we, I asked him, I said, well, let's think about this. What are you riding to? And it kind of just threw him. Um, it was just like a, like a, a little bit of a, like a thought stopper where he was mm. like, hmm, that's a really good question. Because if, if you don't have any place to ride to, when do you know to stop? Right. Like, yeah. how do you, like if you're always wanting to ride away, then there's no, you know, you're going to never want to stop. So it's a little bit of like kind of uh, just self-inquiry, I think. Mm. And, and there's, a, um, there's a yeah philosophical element to that, isn't there? Yeah. 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 So I think it's I think it's educating, you know, coaches and people that work with people and around sport to have um, to just make sure there's some a, a level of awareness internally of what's going on, not just like the external goals. I know I so I was a ski racer. Um, through high school, I didn't continue on in college, but I remember I would um, often train past the point of frostbite on my feet, like really, wow. really painful frostbite. And I look back and I'm like, that is wild that I would, we'd have to like, we like hike up the trail. Like we would oftentimes if we're doing slalom, we wouldn't be like riding on the chairlift. We'd like hike up on our, and um, and the boots were so tight back then. They probably still are um, for racing. And it was just amazing that I like would, put myself through that much pain. And it, 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 once it got to a point where I'm like, I literally can't like, like it's, I saw that it was affecting my ability to like ski, then I would go in. But it was, I remember the pain of like having my feet thaw out and like them being like bright white when I took my, my, my socks off. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, it was never, I was just aware of what my coach's expectation was. It was mm. not, you know, that I need to be out here training. And if I go in, um, I am not, that's not okay with me. Like I'm not meeting my coach's expectations and I'm not certainly not meeting mine. So that was, I think that, that having those conversations about like people knowing their personal limits and like, how do they care for their bodies in sport? Mm. Like some, I feel like there was a lot for me in sport, there was a lack of that. It was um, always about how my body was going to affect my sport. In fact, I mean, this was a really painful part of my history. I'll never forget um, when my father found out about my eating disorder and like, I was kind of forced to tell him, my mother was like forced mm -hmm. me to tell him. And um, I remember him saying like, how could you do that to your body? You're an athlete. And it was like, oh, so much shame. Um, but it was all about my, 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 me as an athlete, not necessarily mm. like me as an, you know what I mean? Like so yeah, I think when we yeah. value the athlete and the performance over the person, that's when we're getting into trouble. Yeah. And I, the, yeah, I think it kind of raises several things, isn't it? It's, it's getting people to have that, like you said, that kind of, I suppose it's mindfulness, isn't it? Understanding their own, their own kind of wants and, and, and how they feel and everything, but then also educating the coaches so that they, cause I think, you know, it, it's, I think it's a classic thing of like, it's all back in my day. We used to just, you know, you just push through frostbite and, you know, you, you just, you, your leg would fall off and you just put it back like on. It felt so normal. Uh, I was like, I, mean, I get frostbite all the time. Like that felt yeah. like <laughs> yeah so I think I think that so because of that we regurgitate it so you know people become coaches and they're like well when I was a kid I did it this way so but right. you know we've learned since then and maybe maybe it's time that we change that and I, I almost feel I kind of feel like I'm being patronizing to coaches I know it's more difficult than that and I know it's hard but um I think it is important to to push beyond those those old those old thoughts that old mentality that it's like oh there's something really virtuous about mm. pushing past your body's limits and like, you know, being in pain and, Oh, look at how, how tough you are that you can endure that. And, um, I, I think it's really dangerous. Yep. Mm. And again, I think that the, 
the summer Olympics really highlighted that for us. And there was another um, story and I'm forgetting the athlete's name. She was a runner and I really appreciated her talking about her experience after being injured and then um, ending up in a bit really dark, deep depression and realizing she had bipolar, but I really appreciated the awareness of mental health um, around that. And there was actually a skier too that acknowledged um, having had an eating disorder too. I think there was one from, so it'll be interesting to see with the Winter Olympics coming up if we see any of that highlighted. Yeah, and it is, it's, I think it's um, more and more athletes are starting to feel comfortable coming out about that kind of stuff, which is which is great because it's going to show the kind of oh, such, normality. So it's great role modeling for, mm. for younger people, right? Exactly. Right. Amy, I am I'm aware of time and I feel like I could speak to you forever, but we have to get to, because it's time yes. for the devil's advocate. It's the devil's advocate. <laughs> Okay. So for people who don't know, and Amy, if you don't know, The Devil's Advocate is a segment of the podcast that I brought in semi-recently, where normally in podcasts, similar to this one, I just agree with my guest and I, I just kind of go along agreeing and going, yes, amazing, amazing. And um, so I wanted to bring in a segment of the podcast where I ask a controversial question that kind of goes against my guest. So today's Devil's Advocate question is... We know that exercise is great for people's health. So why try to stop people exercising? Surely the benefits outweigh the cost at a societal level. Absolutely. So what I want to say, it clarifies, I'm not telling people to stop exercising. By no means am I asking them to do that. I'm just encouraging them to develop a more embodied, joyful relationship with it so that not only is it beneficial well, actually possibly more beneficial to your physical health, but also really beneficial to your, your whole self, your, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, as we've talked about, and um, most likely more sustainable, right? Because if you're enjoying something, you're going to want to do it longer. So for many people, especially this time of year, I see them kind of um, starting an exercise routine that they can't, they can't sustain, they don't like it. They actually feel like it's miserable and then they just give it up. So it's actually having, um, establishing a, a much more uh, joyful and embodied relationship with it and, and finding things that you actually enjoy is gonna be more sustainable long-term, yeah. What about the, the bit at the societal level? You know, we've got a, an obesity epidemic and oh, you know, surely, surely oh, pushing people to, to exercise. That's a tricky one. So I actually, that's a whole other segment because I have, there's a whole lot of research that um, supports this other model of looking at health, health at every size where we, you know, we take those O's away um, because the, it's really hard to separate out weight and behavior, right? Yep, so what, yep. you know, when we look at research, what we can't determine is what is actually contributing to better health. Is it the behaviors? And one of those is absolutely movement exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't uh, distinguish um, what kinds of medical complications are coming from internalized shame. We talked about shame a lot earlier, right? The internalized stigma that people living in larger bodies mm -hmm. experience, the, inter the, the constant, um, uh, and actually there's a lot of, um, bias in, in the medical community as well. So there's a lot of different things to unpack there, but I will say, and even in that regard, I mean, we know exercise is beneficial to our health. What is not beneficial though, is if you are constantly in a sympathetic state, right? Really stressed out and exercising. We know mm. stress is probably the number one um, correlate to a lot of the, all the different um, health 
issues we see. And it's certainly one that I see in my own work, you know, in the course of 20 years when people come in with cardiac issues and when we really start to look at what's going on, it's like, oh, well, they were having, they're under the most stress they've ever been in their life and all these different things that I think kind of gets undervalued. And also, I don't know if you've ever heard, um, read or heard of the word um, uh, breath by James Nestor. Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh, highly recommend it. And it, he talks a lot about the value of looking at our respiratory health. And in the Framingham Heart Study, it was determined that second to, which is a really a longitudinal study that's been, you know, kind of the data has been looked at over years. Um, they saw that second to age, uh, lung capacity was really um, the most indicate, the most um, predictive of, of longevity. Wow. So it's interesting. Some of these things we're not looking at, like because you think when people are stressed and they're anxious, their 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 breath gets very shallow, and that's another reason to bring in more meditation, more mindfulness. That's interesting. And I, I just I want to I, I don't know the the opposite to preempt but postempt yeah. this with I was one hundred percent playing the devil's advocate when I mentioned the obesity thing. I agree. Um, just yeah. for the listeners at home, I don't want them thinking I was actually going along with that. Um, yeah. But I, I agree with you, and I, I, you know, I haven't read enough into the kind of um, obesity work to kind of know fully, but I, d- I definitely know that I did my master's degree in nutrition. Yeah. And I, I know for a fact that, you know, a lot of the nutrition research, there's so much like epidemiological stuff where some, they say, oh, you know, eating this food is bad for you. But actually what they, what they ignore is the fact that it is actually what's really going on is all those people who eat that food also just don't do anything. Like they just sit down right. and don't move. Right. Whereas, well, there's a and, lot, but it's really hard to yeah control for all mm. the different like, factors. There's a lot of social determinants of health that we now realize, right? Someone living in poverty or like someone, like there's a lot of different val- um, variables that pl- genetics, like, mm. um, you know, all these things play into health. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes things so much more confusing and you can't, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's, yeah, it's very, very hard to ascertain the link between obesity and health. Like you do, um, the, yeah. our understanding yeah. of it isn't, you know, I don't think we have a good enough understanding. Um, okay. Amy, again, conscious of time. I want to make sure we get, we get through all the questions. So we're going to move on to the final three and um, the final three originally I used to call these the final three questions, but um, I've, I've kind of an on running joke has been that none of them are actually questions, the more statements um, and more tell you to say these things rather than ask you to. Um, so the final three, the first one is name a person who inspires you. I am going to say Tara Brock. She's been very influential in the mindfulness area and every time I hear her speak I feel inspired she speaks from a really uh, deep level of compassion and um, I've always, I always take away a lot of wisdom when I listen to her and she's very connected to nature and um, I feel like she's very relatable whereas some spiritual mindfulness leaders feel more esoteric or like you know not as um, easy to connect with so mm. I, I, I will say that she leads from her heart and that's what I really strive to do in my, in my life and my work. Yeah. There's something about people who are really, um, kind of, yeah. Uh, what's the word I want to say articulate and like, kind of ironic that I couldn't think of the word when I was saying articulate, but <laughs> you, feel, you feel like she really connects to herself and speaks deeply from her heart when mm. she, she, she talks. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay. The second one is name a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives came from it. Mm, I definitely say my adolescence, it was very turbulent and uh, really, and as you, if you read my book, you'll know very hard. And mm. yet I really got to know myself as a result of that. And it, it really led me to do the work that I'm doing now. So I feel like a lot came out of that. 
Amazing. Thank you. And the last one is name a phrase to live by. Mm. So I've got two that come to mind. The first one is what you appreciate appreciates. And I don't know the author that's unknown, but I've really, whenever I um, think about my life and what I value, um, it really helps realign me um, what mm. you appreciate appreciates. And then the other one that really relates well to the iMove program is you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And that's by John Kabat-Zinn, who's also very well known in the mindfulness community. I love that. The, the second one makes complete sense to me. The idea of, you know, um, you can't stop life kind of hitting you, but you can learn how to deal with it. I think that's right. fantastic. Can you unpack that first one a bit more? Because my brain can't seem to figure yeah, it out. So when you think about like um, when what you appreciate, right, what you appreciate, what you feel grateful for in your life. I mean, certainly if it's money, right, you're probably going to have more money if that feels mm. like a really important thing in your life. If you really appreciate um fun or time with family, um, by appreciating it, you will notice that it, it actually, um, you bring more of it into your life and you elevate your experience with it. Um, when you really focus on those things that are, are, are valuable and mean a lot, um, in your life, that's been my experience. So it's, it's kind of like a gratitude practice. Okay. That makes, that makes more sense now. Thank you. Um, Amy, thank you so, so much for coming on the Maya Minds podcast. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation, George. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, and everyone at home, thank you again so, so much for making it through one of the podcasts. And I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.